This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Nick Shala, the Air Force's Chief Software Officer. Nick, welcome to the program. Uh, thank you for having me. This interview is really based on a several speeches you've given over the last couple months, and I'm really glad we were able to catch up because there's so much, so many cool things that are happening in the Air Force around software development. And as you look across the government, the whole push to DevSecOps is really being led by a couple agencies. Air Force, I think, is definitely one of them. The U- U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service is another. PTO is another. So let's just start with some basics and, and discuss, just broadly speaking, at a very high level, the DevSecOps initiatives that you're leading. Walk me through what it is and a little historical perspective about why you and, and the Air Force has decided to go in this direction. We started the, the DoD Enterprise DevSecOps initiative about uh, 18, 19 months ago now. Uh, when I started uh, at ANS with Ms. Lord. And really, it's a joint initiative with UD CIO, DISA, uh, ANS, and, and the Air Force now, where yeah, we decided to, to push the initiative to, to the Air Force as, the, as the, the executive agent so we can scale faster and, and bring this to life uh, in a rapid manner. The initiative is really designed to help uh, DoD programs at scale and help with both uh, technology uh, challenges and also culture and policy by bringing tangible guidance and and tech to the DoD programs. We have about 45 now DoD programs, the largest DoD programs, all part of the initiative across all the services. And so it's pretty exciting to see that both uh, the the Army, uh, the Navy, the Air Force, uh, the Fourth Estate. And many agencies are now uh, using the reference design that we released uh, back in August 19, uh, which really outlines kind of the the key principles of of DevSecOps and how to get accredited and and benefit from the the continuous accreditation that we uh, we released. And then we also released a ton of of tech with uh, uh, RepoOne, which is the the repo of containers, and uh, the Iron Bank, which is the, the sign container that, that teams can use. Everything is open source, and that's pretty exciting to see. Uh, we, we're sharing this back uh, to the community, and we, we see dozens of companies also on the commercial side uh, using this as well. One thing I, I actually didn't know is that you this was a, a joint agency across all of DOD effort, bringing in both the Army and the Navy, obviously DISA. Walk me through a little bit about the Air Force is obviously ahead, but the other agencies are starting to use more than the reference architecture, or is this for them right now just a bit of a paper exercise? They're looking at it, figuring out how it can fit into their current processes. Yeah, so we created the team called Platform One, and so Platform One and Cloud One, so they they three two teams. Cloud One is the cloud office that provides access to Amazon and Azure, and Cloud One is being used today at scale uh, across duty, if not just for the Air Force as well. Um, and you can think of it as a, as a call office to be able to get access to compute and storage with an ATO day one and be able to move fast. And then we have Platform One, which is the, uh, the platform team uh, for DevSecOps, which is the uh, enterprise service team for all of DoD as well. And so Platform One is used, uh, again, by uh, 45 uh, DoD programs today uh, at scale. It's not just, you know, policy and architecture, it's, it's actual tech. Uh, we have uh, DevSecOps environments across 
all classification levels. And we have a lot of different options in terms of uh, services, managed, managed services. We design it very much as a company because I guess that's my background. And really, it's kind of a la carte menu of options where teams can pick either just using the code and run with it all the way to getting a full DevSecOps managed service, uh, whether they want to use what we call the party bus, which is the multi-tenant environment where they get access to an existing enclave that's managed by us and and have access to the tools that, that we picked. And, and obviously that's a little bit cheaper as well. Or they can use the, what we call the, the big bang, which is the ability to instantiate a dedicated enclave for the larger programs um, across multiple classifications, all the way from unclass to uh, to the classified uh, clouds and on-premise environments as well. Uh, so Platform One is really kind of the platform team that can empower any any team, whether it's a software factory, whether it's a program office, um, to be able to get access to a DevSecOps stack with a continuous ATO and be able to uh, focus on writing their mission software and release software multiple times a day as needed uh, without having to reinvent the wheel. You mentioned uh, 45 programs. Uh, just give me a sense of some of those programs maybe people have heard of or some of those that are the biggest users. We have uh, you know, many programs, of course, in the Air Force with F- F-16, F-35, uh, GBSD, which is the uh, uh, the global-based uh, strategic deterrence, um, uh, and then we we have uh, teams like uh, Jake, the Joint AI Center from the CIO. We have DISA programs. We have AR Cyber in the Army. The big uh, the big data platform. We have a unified platform in in the Air Force, Cyber Offense, Defense, with Cyber Command. Yeah, I think it's it's pretty exciting to see the broad adoption and really what we're touching, you know, Aegis in the Navy, which is also, you know, a massive programs as well. And it's uh, interesting because this is empowering both the uh, the federal employees, uh, both uh, civilians and military uh, personnel, but also um, the DIB, right, the defense uh, industrial base. And, and the goal is to provide access, right, to these environments to everybody. So they inherit the cyber settings and configurations and we also build automation so the the environment can be uh, deployed on multiple classification levels with no drift uh, full automation and then also empowering the the testing teams uh, airworthiness assessments um, nuclear surety teams and all the otdt uh, testing teams across the od to be able to also do their hardware in the loop testing using the, the same principles and trying to remove the bottlenecks as much as possible. So it's it's really a massive enabler. We already have saved about 100 plus years of program time just in one year uh, by moving these programs to DevSecOps. We, we usually see uh, 18 months uh, every five year of program time saved per program, which is pretty amazing. We've talked about that a little bit before, and I think it w- just to put a, maybe a finer point on it, it's if this capability would have taken an extra 18 months, if not in DevSecOps, over a five-year period, maybe I'm not 100% there, but for clarification. What we mean by that is every program had a very well-defined timeline, and by moving to DevSecOps, we're saving 18 months out of that time uh, and with the same, you know, same results, but just 18 months faster. 
per program on average. And for DOD, that's huge. I mean, that's that's time to mission, that's time to, cap- to fielding the capabilities, that's time to getting, obviously, the warfighter, the technology, the capabilities that they need. Walk me through a little bit about how we got there. There was a big push for DevSecOps over the last you know, five, six years, but it seems like it's been a more of a trickle than a, a fast movement. The Air Force, and again, like some other agencies, seem to have moved a little bit faster. How are you guys able to move faster to, to get this set up? I mean, it feels like 18 months is, you know, as you said, 18, 19 months is a long time, but it's pretty quick in government years, right? Yeah, no, it's, it's pretty incredible, and we're very excited about this uh, result. And that's just within one year. We're hopeful we can even do better than that. And part of the, the savings are both on the ability to release software faster, uh, but also the ability to accurate the software uh, continuously, which will compound, right? So um, the more you're going to release, uh, the more you can do your continuous authority to operate, right? Or continuous ATO, uh, the more you're going to save time. When you look across the government, there's a lot of agencies that have tried DevSecOps and maybe have taken small bites out of it. What do you think was the reason, from your opinion, why the Air Force, why DOD was able to jump into this more easily, more quickly? Was it just mission criticality or is there another reason? Was it, I mean, everyone says leadership, but, but maybe expand upon that. But I like to think of this anyway as, as a DOD-wide initiative. I, I don't see it as an Air Force thing. You know, I, I came from ANS. Uh, yes, of course, the Air Force has been leading the pack with Kessel Runs and, and Space Camps and other teams. But again, this is really designed to scale. And I think, you know, it's pretty exciting to see that everyone is actually caught up writing. We have uh, over 1,400 people in the committee of practice for DevSecOps, for DoD. I mean, this is pretty incredible to see how this happened in a a very well uh, coordinated way and really by empowering teams to, um, to pick the tools they needed and not have a one size fits all approach. And I think that part of the reason of the success of this is we we really uh, use commercial best practices, right? So one is we really didn't want to push a, a one-size-fits-all, didn't want to get locked into a cloud provider or to a product. So we picked, you know, Kubernetes, uh, which is open source and part of the Cloud Native Computing Foundation. And we became a member of the CNCF as well, picked containers uh, to make sure that we have these Lego blocks that can be used and swapped around um, so the so teams can can still uh, pick the, the tool that is right for them and their mission and not come with uh, something that would be very, very opinionated in terms of the stack itself. And so I would say that the success is one, you know, we're treating the, the programs as customers. And so we're, we're here to please the customer and not the other way around. That's a big uh, success uh, factor there. And we bring options. As I said, as, as little as just use the code and run with it, all the way to a full managed stack. And I think teams like that, having uh, the flexibility of, of picking what they want to use is critical. And I think that's a big reason as far as why we're successful, but also because uh, I think we, we picked the right uh, tech and the uh, the tech is important. Uh, we also brought the right training, uh, commercial training that's not biased, biased to, to one product. So it's really uh, uh, designed to uh, to be agnostic um, and to scale. Uh, Ms. Lord wanted us to train 100,000 people in one year, and we wanted to make sure we could uh, bring commercial 
best practices on, on clouds and uh, a self-learning pace, which is critical for the success anyway, because the, the tech uh, keeps changing rapidly and, and people have to learn uh, to continuously learn uh, by following best practices online. So I have to ask the question, 100,000 people in one year, how close did you get? So we, we started this year, so we're not done yet. So that started back in, in January. Of course, uh, we had multiple plans, and uh, one of them was train the trainer uh, with a lot of on-premise uh, uh, training sessions, which obviously the, the COVID-19 situation is, is not help, helping. But we do have uh, licenses online. Uh, so we brought a couple of, of, of solutions out there uh, to be able to allow for the self-learning training which provides access to a cloud and a sandbox so teams don't learn in a vacuum. We also embedded people from Platform One into the, the big teams, which enables the, the training on-site and during a minimal viable product for two, two weeks to two months, right? So the teams can learn by having people there on-site. But again, the, the virus is also impacting that as well. Uh, so I think we have to kind of rethink the way we can do a pair programming and training on site, right? <laughs> By uh, moving to remote instances, which is obviously not ideal, right? For, for training and it's doable. It's just not as efficient. So there's an impact there. I don't know yet what the impact is going to be, but I can tell you that uh, uh, there's also gain in efficiency uh, by having the right tools. Uh, Platform One was able to, again, demonstrate the value of, uh, of DevSecOps by deploying uh, the chat Mattermost um, in 24, 28 hours, really, uh, with the, the ATO. So teams can jump on the chat and be able to uh, collaborate while being remote. And that's been a massive enabler across the OD, really. We have, we have teams across all the services, including OSD and even the, the SecDef office using Mattermost. And again, that was done in 28 hours. I mean, you know, the ATO alone would have taken probably eight months back in the day. So this is a great demonstration of the value of that ops again. I want to talk a little bit more about the collaboration tool that you just mentioned. But first, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can continue our conversation. My guest today is Nicholas Shalah, the Air Force's Chief Software Officer. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Nicholas Shalah, the Air Force's Chief Software Officer. So, Nick, before break, we were talking a little bit about the, the impact of DevSecOps across not only the Air Force, but really across all of DOD. And you had brought up this idea of pushing out some tools to DOD's remote workers very quickly as the coronavirus really pandemic really uh, ratcheted up and more people were working remotely. You mentioned two tools. One was the Microsoft Teams, which a lot of agencies are using. And then the other one is Mattermost which is more just a strictly a chat tool. Let me start with that one. That took, you said, 24 hours to get to ATO, which is un- unbelievable. But uh, it was key because of, of for, for many other reasons. So walk me through a little bit about the thinking about how the Mattermost tool went through this, for lack of a better word, DevSecOps methodology. Because I know you weren't developing anything, but you still put it through the automation and ATO pieces. Yeah, I think that, that was a great uh, way to demonstrate the value of, of the continuous ATO and the DevSecOps pipeline. While, you know, Mattermost is open source and also a commercial product, the container uh, had to be accredited and we also had to set up the environment, right, to be able to go to the FOUO level, which, you know, is, is always challenging even more on the cloud. And so the, the team was able in, in, again, 28 hours total 
from the beginning of yes, let's do this to it's online and accredited to do this in 28 hours, which you know pretty is incredible. And that includes not just the ATO, but actually doing the the tech portion of it, including setting up a cloud enclave with all the cyber tools that are needed. And that demonstrates again the value of uh, what we do in terms of automation, right? Infrastructure as code is what we use to replicate environments and be able to stand up dedicated enclaves on the cloud at, at different uh, classification levels with the cyber settings and, and cyber controls already baked in. And so we don't have to rebuild that from scratch. We can just reuse it. And then they had to go and, and approve and get the, the, the container uh, Mattermost accredited, uh, which you know is something that we do with Platform One. They have uh, that ability to uh, continuously scan containers and be able to accredit containers on the DevSecOps pipeline, which is managed by my team as well. And you know the continuous ATO uh, allows us then once it passes those gates on the pipeline to deploy it into uh, into the, the cloud and and be able to use it. And that's what we've done. And, and Bill Mayan and, and the the Air Force CIOs team has been a you know, a, a prime supporter on this to be able to uh, let us deploy this without a CAC because a lot of the employees did not have a CAC reader uh, while being remote and uh, no uh, government furniture equipment to be able to connect. So we wanted to make sure we could allow those people that were sent home uh, to be able to connect again, you know, 24 hours later on, uh, you know, their personal devices if need be, but while bringing the security we needed uh, for them to be able to chat at the FOU level. So that was that was a great experience right there. I think the key here is twofold. Number one, given that the challenges that every agency is facing with remote workers, the DOD and the Air Force said, okay, how do we add that flexibility, but also keeping at least a certain level of rigor? Is this the most you know rigorous piece of software? Maybe not, but it's, it's also, you, you also looked at the risks and said, we're using this, is a way to communicate, not to share documents, not to pass along classified information. And it's going to make people's lives easier while also maintaining some rigor of security. In many ways, that's what DevSecOps is all about, the flexibility with the rigor of security and at the right risk level. Walk me through some of that thinking. Yeah, I think it, the key is to understand the risk, right? I think many times we make decisions with the what we think is the risk level and we don't actually really understand the tangible risk level. And so by by going through these pipelines and these scans, we actually get real eyes on, on the, the risk. And, uh, you know, we require multiple set of eyes to approve uh, containers, which, you know, mitigates inside of threat and also brings the ability for a better review and configuration management and, and change management enforcement need to know, list privilege, all the, the best cyber best practices. So I think we check a lot of the boxes, right? If you, if you look at the, the NIST, the cybersecurity framework, a lot of that stuff uh, is, is fully automated, right? I would say 90% of the NIST controls are, are automated inside our, the, the DevSecOps pipeline that we have. The rest is done by, by human uh, while building the, the stack, which really is what enables the teams to then focus on the, on the 10% and get it done quickly. At the same time you guys are doing the matter most tool, you guys also are across the, the DOD 
deploying the Microsoft Teams, which is a much higher level collaboration tool. It's more than just chat. There's document sharing and others. That also is going through this DevSecOps pipeline. Walk me through a little bit about how you guys are using it, the, the platform one, the cloud one uh, tools to ensure Teams uh, obviously gets out the, the door to the users, but also to secure. Yeah, so, so Microsoft Teams was actually deployed by, by DoD CIO and, and, and the, the task force that was stood up specifically for the telework issue. And, and so that, that team has done an incredible job with Microsoft, really hand in hand, to be able to de- deploy a dedicated enclave, bringing Teams, but also OneDrive and other options. It's, it's not just Teams, it's, it's a whole suite of, uh, of products from Microsoft. It does not include email, but it does include a lot of the uh, Office 365 suite. It's a, it's a little bit of a different process because, of course, this is the managed service provided by Microsoft. So a lot of it is, is done on the DevSecOps side, but, but by Microsoft themselves, right? They have the, the same uh, capabilities, and, and obviously Microsoft has been leading the pack with, with other companies when it comes to uh, DevSecOps pipelines, and they follow the, the very same concepts. And again, that demonstrate the ability to uh, uh, for a company like like Microsoft to uh, to deploy in, in in weeks really a dedicated environment of uh, you know Microsoft uh, uh, products at the impact level four, which is a four UO level, within a few days for hundreds of thousands of people. So uh, really, that that task force has done an incredible job. The, the question will be then is, are we going to have the same capability long term, right? And, and be able to continue to benefit from the lessons learned during this crisis? Or are we going to go back to, you know, being behind a VPN and, and things like that? And that's something I'm, I'm hopeful uh, that the leadership will see the, the value of this by actually playing with it and, and learn and, and see that, uh, this is the way, you know, commercial companies do business. And uh, I think once, you know, the DoD employees are going to get used to uh, to it, it's going to be uh, a very difficult to go back. And so I'm hopeful that we can actually push this to be the norm and not just the exception. I think a lot of uh, federal employees and a lot of CIO types also are saying the same thing that, hey, look, look how much we can work outside the office. It's not so hard and people actually do get work done. Um, and it's, again, the technology to them is, is so much easier today than it was, you know, three, five, ten years ago. Two things that I think are, are critical that people need to understand. I think one is the parameter security is gone and, and people need to finally get the zero trust model and understand the implication of that. And it doesn't mean we have no security, right? It just means it's a different type of security that's more data-centric, uh, allowing the, the access for, for, from different systems, whether it's on the cloud, on-premise, or, or mobile, but yet still have the, the security baked in, but stop thinking of a, of a parameter approach. And I think that's, that's a big mind, mind shift for the, in terms of culture for, for DoD, which I, I think we're getting there. The, the other one is obfuscation, right? I think a lot of people think that by hiding or not being open in terms of, you know, piggybacking on open source products and and uh, being more transparent in terms of uh, uh, the way the systems are architected, that that brings a level of, of security. But, but we know that, you know, uh, even when we send things that have uh, never been seen before at, uh, you know, events like DEF CON, <laughs> that you know hackers can get in within minutes 
even when it's a completely government-developed system that they've never seen before, right? So obfuscation is just not going to be successful when it comes to security. Millions of items code and, and ability to fix fast. And so timeliness is always critical for cybersecurity. And so being able to push containers and fix those containers in seconds is is particularly critical. And I think that's also where the, the DevSecOps uh, pipeline will, will empower the teams to do that. So that's going to be a, a massive win as well. All right, Nicholas, let's take a quick break. We can come back, we can continue our conversation and maybe get into something called software factories, which is another big innovation coming from the Air Force. My guest is Nicholas Shalah, the Air Force's Chief Software Officer. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Nicholas Shalah, the Air Force's Chief Software Officer. One of the other things I want to kind of circle back around to now is where is the Air Force, because I know this is a DOD, uh, across the DOD effort, but given your title of the Air Force Chief Software Officer, give me a sense of where the Air Force is today with the whole DevSecOps methodology, just narrow it down versus the, the, the broader perspective. It's pretty incredible to see that the number of, of teams that are now moving to DevSecOps, and of course there is different maturity models and it's not going to happen overnight for the legacy systems, but they're using what we call the strangler pattern, which is a way to uh, take the legacy and, and strangle it to move to DevSecOps and, and stop the bleeding, right? And not put good money after bad money in terms of uh, keeping, uh, you know, the legacy grow bigger. And really, I think that this is pretty incredible to see that we have so many teams in the Air Force now. We have all these cool names, right? The, the Ski Cam, Space Cam, Kobayashi Maru, Kessel Run, Bespin, Tron, and so many teams, right, across across the Air Force now that have their mission, right, and they're trained to solve problems and uh, really do a great job at collaborating so they don't reinvent the wheel and really piggybacking on the platform one team to be able to uh, uh, to be, to reuse the stack and focus on their mission, right? Teams, uh, you know, when I started were really building their own platform and, and that's why we built Platform One, right? So Teams like that can refocus on their mission software and not spending a year to build a platform just so they can build their mission software. I think that's been a, a prime example of, of uh, collaboration. And sometimes, you know, uh, ego or, or other things get in the way. And I, I've been very proud of to see that all these teams are fully, uh, you know, adopted the, that, that mindset of collaboration. That's key here is is getting that buy-in. And I think the Kessel Runs and the other cool names from Star Wars have really helped get people on board to see what they've been able to do. And then it's the whole, okay, if they can do it, why can't we do it? And and that's how things grow. I mean, that's basically what you've seen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that started all the way, you know, with Kessel Run and then Level Up, uh, you know, Unified Platform, the, the Cyber Command uh, Program, Offense, Defense, Cyber uh, Tools. That, that's been very successful in in partnering across uh, organizations as well and and then level up you know merge with uh, space camp to create platform one and then we've really partnered across all these teams and uh, i was impressed to see how the the teams were able to um, share code and share lessons learned we have these community of practice we have these events uh, reunions kind of things retreats where uh, all the devsecops teams go and collaborate for a couple of days to see what are the top challenges, you know, what they could solve together. We created the first uh, 
Cloud Native Access Point uh, that we got accredited, which by itself is game changing, which enables the teams to connect to the cloud directly without going through a cloud access point that's hosted on the on the Dodden. And so that that enables the teams to, uh, uh, particularly outside of the Dodden, like uh, you know, partners and, and vendors and, and startups as well, to connect on the the platform one stack without having to to go through a cloud access point on, on premise and have to VPN on Nipper to connect. So that's it's things like that that are just game changing for the department. You mentioned something that really got my uh, reporter antennae up. You said you uh, were able to accredit and connect through a cloud access point without going through the Doden. Uh, walk me through that, because that, that true is a huge game changer, not just for the Air Force, but if that's something that the rest of DOD could do, that is an issue what we've seen in the civilian world, too, with the trusted internet connection, the latency, the, the challenges of connecting back through the network to get back out to the internet. So walk me through why this accreditation is so important. We created with DODCA and this, uh, uh, the, the cloud native access point. And so this is uh, a pathfinder to really demonstrate that we can move the cloud access point, the cap from the Darden to the cloud uh, as a cloud native elastic thing. I think that's, uh, that's been a, a massive capability that, that we deployed. We deployed it in a way that, that can scale across DOD. We have the full uh, infrastructure as code so we can deploy it on any cloud. And we started with uh, the Platform One team to be able to, to test it and get feedback with a couple of teams with F35 and, and GBSD and the Unify platform. And really, we, we're going to be able to scale from there. I think that's uh, demonstrating that uh, the more we move to the cloud, the more we need to be on the cloud uh, natively without having to bring anyone back to the Darden, even more so if they are not already on the Darden, which, you know, is actually uh, reducing the attack surface, right, of, and the cyber risks there. So we're pretty excited. It's something up and running now. We have dozens of options. It's, it's pretty exciting to see that we allow teams connect with a, with a fake endpoint or a zero client and, and VDI, but also we have a capability with a zero trust enforcement to enable teams to use both government furnished equipment, but also bring on device, mobile and desktop, and uh, assess the state of the device and uh, who they are in the organization and, and whitelist access to what they should have access to. And so it's a real zero trust stack. It's uh, enforcing device state and the role of the user to whitelist access to resources based on the state of the device. So if, if your device is not patched or if the device is a GFE or if it's a bring on device or if it's just mobile, we can create very uh, precise rules as far as what the user can see and it replaces VPNs. And so it's really uh, kind of game changing, I think, uh, for the cyber poster, reducing, reducing the attack surface, but also uh, empowering the, the user of, of bringing on device while keeping the, the device enforcement and compliant to connect. You talk about this as a pathfinder. Are you testing this? You mentioned the F-35, the GBSD. Are you looking to do this for three months, six months, or is this a, a lack of a, a permanent pathfinder, and then you'll kind of expand and change based on the lessons you learn to other programs and, and, and areas? Well, the goal is certainly to, to scale. Uh, obviously, it's going to depend on, on the lessons learned, and, and, and obviously, we want to make sure there's no cyber issue there. That's obviously the, the prime concern of and NSA and, and DOD CIO. Once we demonstrate that you know the cyber poster is actually improved, um, my hope is that it is going to become part of the 
the accepted way to connect to the cloud and and and, and update the the cloud uh, security guide to reflect that as well. All right, obviously something to uh, continue to follow up with the Air Force as things progress, and we will also come back around to the zero trust discussion a little bit later in the show. Before I do that, one of the things that Air Force CIO Bill Marion mentioned to me about a month and a half or two months ago was the launching of these software factories more broadly to really expand the use of DevSecOps across the Air Force. Can you walk me through where you guys are at today with that? Are are more people have access to these software factories? Because that's really the key here is, is not just to create these tools, but make sure people can use them. One of the things we see now is that Platform One is empowering pretty much any program office become a factory. You know, Ski Camp really came out of F-16 and GPSD. Uh, and then, you know, multiple teams like that just uh, become factory de facto by just embracing the culture and the tools provided by, by Platform One. My hope is that, you know, any team can really use this at scale without having to reinvent the wheel. Uh, and we do have already, you know, 20 plus factories up there and it's great. They all have these, these cool names and branding and, and things like that. Uh, the, the key for us is to make sure that it's well understood what the, their, their mission focus is. So there's no uh, reinventing the wheel and that they piggyback on the platform work by, by platform one. So they can simply focus on building mission software and not, you know, building a, a custom platform DevSecOps pipeline. Uh, and it's it's what's happening. So I think it's it's pretty incredible. Uh, and the fact that we also help uh, people outside of the Air Force is even better. We we have dozens of discussions even outside of DoD, with the VA, uh, with the White House, with the DHS, IRS, uh, DOI, DOJ. So it's it's really spreading. I, I, you know the IRS as well. I mean there, there's so many teams that now want to either use the containers, use, use the code, use the contract vehicle. We awarded, you know, 55 basic ordering agreements to be able to uh, acquire services, talents, and licenses, uh, and cloud within, you know, 30 days. So teams can come to Platform One and really get the full DevSecOps concept going really in, in, in days, what used to probably take a year. When you talk about those other agencies, are they able to use the Platform One or is it just taking what you've built and maybe looking at it from a civilian perspective? It could be both. You know, obviously some agencies want to have their own capability and and that's fine. So they take the code and run with it. Some agencies just want to piggyback on the managed service side and they can absolutely get access to the same cloud environment and, and piggyback on that as well. So we have teams that are starting just now to uh, to be deployed on platform one on the managed service as well. Even even from outside of the US with even partners with Canada and, and other um, allies, including with S35. So you actually have civilian agencies who are either using the managed services side of the platform one, just to be clear? Yeah, they are they are deploying on platform one now and, and you know there's different level of, of training of course. Some of these teams have to be trained first and uh, then we have to make sure they're authorizing official uh, approved reciprocity of the stack, which usually is, is pretty easy. We, we didn't have any any issue with that in the past, but there's obviously a, a big training piece there. So they have access to the stack now. It's really okay. Can you use it at scale and 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 build mission software? There's a lot of DevSecOps principles that are new, and it's it's moving very fast. And Kubernetes and containers and service mesh and so many of these concepts are new to a lot of people. So we spend a lot of time, you know, training and, and providing access to training as well. 
Nick, let's take a quick break. We come back, we can finish up our conversation, get into some of those security issues. My guest is Nicholas Shalah, the Air Force's Chief Software Officer. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Nicholas Shalah, the Air Force's Chief Software Officer. I want to jump over to security for a second because you mentioned this a couple of times. This is huge. The ATO process is one of those issues that is just agencies struggle with how to get through the process. It can take too long. There's too many check boxes to go through. Walk me through why the continuous ATO is so important to the DevSecOps process and to this broader digital transformation. Well, I think it's a critical enabler for the teams to be able to move at the pace of relevance. If you can't accurate software software continuously and release software multiple times a day and, and move from a, a big release, you know, every uh, quarter, year, five year into uh, a smaller iterative process of releasing software, you know, multiple times a day or as needed, really and there is no uh, guidance there, uh, one would say that's where you know the, the world is going and, and we just cannot afford not to be there. Uh, you will just get behind and, and then um, it compounds, right, in terms of, of time lost and, and timeliness is obviously critical both for cyber, but also for the ability to, to release new capabilities as well. So I think the continuous ATO is, is a prime enabler and we're working with the ODCIO to make this an official concept with the training officials and with the rest of the community as well. And uh, one of the, the, the team we have as part of the, the DSOG, which is the DOD security, security Authorization Working Group, I'm the chair for the DevSecOps subgroup of that, which um, has a team dedicated on, on creating guidance for the country's ATO so that the accrediting officials can actually understand the concept, which is really different, right? It's not a fast-track ATO. It's not an accelerated ATO. A continuous ATO uh, is focused on accrediting the process and the gates inside of that process and then accrediting the team using the process so that they can you know, continuously accredit software and what comes out of that process, which is really a, a pipeline, a DevSecOps pipeline or a software factory, um, comes out already accredited. And so the software going through these gates and passing these gates comes out of the the pipeline I created as well. How difficult has this been to set up uh, because of the requirements of the, not just DOD faces, but really across all of the government? There are, it's a higher level in many cases than a lot of what's going on in the commercial sector. But at the same time, as you said, if you don't do it, you can't wait six months or nine months for a capability. So there's the, the, the risk balance that we talked about earlier. How difficult was this to set up and get through, if you will, the naysayers, the legal folks, the auditors and the like? I think it's pretty easy when you show the right uh, gates, right? I think we actually bring more security, more real-time visibility. Instead of you know seeing an assessment every year or whatever, uh, they are able to see continuously the, the cyber posture and the, the reporting. And so I think that transparency and that access to that data is, is, has been critical to convince the, uh, the cyber community and also uh, uh, the rest of the DoD uh, community to to jump on this. I actually believe this is way more secure, and incremental change by definition is going to be smaller and less impactful. Um, and, and the ability to update fast and and so fail fast, but uh, learn fast, but don't fail twice for the same reason, is is critical, right? So uh, high test coverage, right? There's a reason why Google is doing 150 million tests on their software a day, right? Uh, there's a reason why. They are able to uh, to update software without breaking stuff, 
And there's a reason why, you know, companies like SpaceX are able to do uh, 17,000 build of software a day and then three uh, hardware in the loop testing to make sure that the, the software behaves the same on the, on the, on the hardware. And so that's critical concepts that I think are going to actually decrease risk and make not only software uh, more trusted, but also more, more agile. The other big push that we're seeing across government is a lot of talk about zero trust. And again, zero trust is not a technology. It's more of a framework. It's more of a methodology, if you will. But this, the DevSecOps process, the use of continuous ATOs opens the door to a lot of the zero trust framework that people are really excited about. How has the Air Force really implemented some of those pieces to zero trust? The DevSecOps team has really kind of the, the first, I would say, full uh, implementation of, of zero trust. If you look at the way uh, people think of zero trust, unfortunately, there's still a lot of people that are struggling with understanding what zero trust really means. And I can tell you that it is not just let's remove our firewalls and move to HTTPS uh, and, and having a single sign-on capability to, uh, to authenticate users is not enough. You need to have this device poster and this data security uh, concept baked in. And so one of the, the key concepts that we brought with the, uh, the, the DevSecOps initiative is a full zero-trust stack that enforces a device state, whether you use a, a government-furnished device or, or bring your own device, doesn't matter. Uh, whether it's mobile or, or desktop, laptop or, or server, uh, doesn't matter either. Whether it's on the cloud or on-premise, doesn't matter. And that's critical, right? If you don't have that key principle and if you're using different tools for your mobile stack, for your cloud stack and for your uh, on-premise stack, you, you end up having drift and, and not a, a, a good understanding of the, the cyber risk. And so we, we use tools that, that support all of that uh, with a single pane of glass. And, and then we really tie that back to best practices with software-defined uh, parameter and uh, networking where uh, we whitelist traffic based on the state of the device combined with the user and the role of that user. And based on the device and the state of the device, they only get to see what they're supposed to see. So that, that opens the door to uh, very small attack surfaces where we can control what people have access to and limit the lateral movement of a bad actor if they were to get in from one of the devices. And, and you know, for, for example, uh, we whitelist traffic uh, per container. So for container A to talk to B, it has to be whitelisted, and that, that's pretty unique. All right, Nicholas, more we could talk there, and as well as all the good work you're doing with uh, DevSecOps. But unfortunately, we are out of time, so let me just thank my guest. Nicholas Shalah is the Air Force's Chief Software Officer. Nick, th- thank you so much for taking the time today. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.